Welcome to the North Main Podcast, a production of North Main Street Church of God in Butler, Pennsylvania. This podcast brings you North Main's messages every week. We strive to know God intimately, grow in Christ continually, and go for Him daily. I invite you to listen in today as we explore the Bible and learn about its unchanging truths for living life God's way. Let's listen in to this week's message. If you're just joining us for the first time today or joining us online or at home, um, we're closing out a series today on the book of Jeremiah. If I were to actually take the whole book of Jeremiah and do it service and justice and preach the, the whole thing, it would take, honestly, multiple years at this point because there's uh, over 50 chapters in there. And in order to really unpack it the way would, would do it justice would be to, to go through bit by bit and unpack it. So what we've done this month Actually, in only three of those Sundays, has hit high points in Jeremiah's journey. Uh, and in the nation of Judah's journey into exile. <clears throat> if um, I don't mean to be redundant, but Jeremiah is one of the major prophets of the Old Testament. Why do we call him a major prophet? Because his is one of the larger prophetic books of the Old Testament. We have a set of major prophets and a set of minor prophets. The minor prophets wrote very short prophetic books. There are 12 of those, and then we have the other major prophets like Isaiah, Jeremiah, the book of Daniel falls into that category, uh, but the minor prophets give us similar renditions of different historical aspects of the nation of Israel and the nation of Judah, which was a divided nation, if you will, of the Jewish people, eventually that is. But today we're talking about Jeremiah. Jeremiah writes a letter <clears throat> to the people on behalf of God. So as the prophet of God, God gives Jeremiah a message to give to the people. Now he's been doing this through the whole course of his, his prophetic work, the book of Jeremiah in the Old Testament. But in this specific chapter, it's a, it's a letter that God has Jeremiah write to the exiles, at this point, the Babylonians have already come into the territory. They've encroached upon the city of Jerusalem. The city of Jerusalem is pretty much the last vestige of anything Jewish that remains because all the outlying areas outside the city walls have been pretty much taken over by the Babylonians. And all of those peoples, the Jewish peoples in that whole region have now been taken and dispersed throughout the Babylonian empire. Eventually, the Babylonians would take over Jerusalem by tearing its walls down, setting fire to the city, burning everything down that could be burned, and tearing stone from stone the temple and all the other homes and palaces within the city walls. But Jeremiah writes this letter on behalf of God, and this letter is somewhat bittersweet because this letter Though the people are in exile, God wants to encourage the people that this will not last forever. Have you ever been discouraged? Are you discouraged now? 
A lot of people go through moments and times of discouragement. It could be brought on by a loss of a job, a loss of a loved one. It could just be that you're in a bad mood. You woke up on the wrong side of the bed. It could be somebody has said something about you that's not true and it's come through the grapevine back to you and you're like, well, that's not true. I mean, discouragement could come in any different way. I'm going to read you a story of discouragement as we get started. As was a normal routine on a Sunday morning, a wife got ready for church. She got up, had breakfast, showered, got dressed, and put on makeup and was ready to go. It was just as she was ready to leave that she noticed her husband was still in his robe and pajamas in bed. So she asked him, what's going on with you? I'm not going to church, he says. What do you mean you're not going to church? Give me one good reason why you're not going to church. Well, the husband responded, actually, I'll give you three good reasons why I'm not going to church. Reason number one, the church feels cold. And he's not talking about the actual air. Reason number two, nobody likes me there. And reason number three, I just don't like it. Is that good enough for you? Well, what if, you, what if I give you three reasons why you should go to church? Would you reconsider? Reason number one, the church is actually quite warm and friendly. Reason number two, there are a few people there who do like you. And reason number three, you're the pastor, sweetheart. Get up, get dressed, and get to church. There is more truth to that than you realize. <laughs> Jeremiah 29, starting with verse 1. Jeremiah wrote a letter from Jerusalem to the elders, priests, prophets, and all the people who had been exiled to Babylon by King Nebuchadnezzar. This was after King Jehoiakim, the queen mother, the court officials, the other officials of Judah, and all the craftsmen and artisans had been deported from Jerusalem. Now, I want you to hear this, because this makes a connection to Daniel. Daniel and who would become Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, those weren't their Jewish names, they would be deported in this exile. They were some of the smartest, the best looking. If you read the book of Daniel, you'll see what I'm talking about. So much so that Nebuchadnezzar wanted the best of the Jewish men to work in service for him. But they had to take about three years to learn the customs of the Babylonian culture, the language, sciences, and everything else that was necessary. And so you see, all the ones that weren't worth wiping out, they exiled into the region of Babylon. Verse 3, he sent the letter with Elasa, son of Shephan, and Gemariah, son of Hilkiah, when they went to Babylon as King Zedekiah's ambassadors to Nebuchadnezzar. So 
Again, remember, Jerusalem's still intact. The walls are there. The temple's there. The king's palace is still there. And so King Zedekiah, who is the last surviving king of the nation before it is destroyed and everyone then sent completely into exile, sends ambassadors to Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar. And this is what Jeremiah's letter said. Now, I'm not going to read the whole letter to you because it gets more into some other details that aren't pertinent for our discussion today, but I would challenge you to read the whole chapter uh, when you have time to do so. Verse 4, this is what the Lord of heaven's armies, the God of Israel, says to all the captives he has exiled to Babylon from Jerusalem. Now, who has exiled them? This is a letter from God through Jeremiah to the people in exile But Nebuchadnezzar has been the emperor to make this happen. But who has exiled them? God has exiled them. Don't forget that. Why has he exiled them? That seems mean. God's only good and fluffy and loving, and he's all about puppies and rainbows and flowers and pretty things. Actually, God can discipline He can bring judgment. He is a God who is just and righteous. And so his people, for so long, he had contended with them. He'd given them a law to live by. He said, these are the things you should do. Here are the things you shouldn't do. If you do these things, it will go well for you. You'll prosper in the land. Uh, Your enemies will never be able to conquer you. It will all be good if you just continue to do what I've called you to. And we know after centuries, starting with the book of Judges, all the way through to the last king Zedekiah, they would go through cycles. They would do what's right. There would be a generation that would come up that would do the right things and a leader and leaders among them that would reestablish the core fundamentals of the faith and of God's laws and purposes. And they would begin to do what they should have been doing all along. But then another generation would come along and they would forget God and his laws and purposes and commands. And there was this crazy cycle that went on from the book of Judges, actually all the way back to the book of Joshua, if you want to be specific, but specifically Judges, all the way through to the last king. But if you look at the history of every nation on earth, you see the ebb and the flow of goodness and badness. The only perfect kingdom is God's kingdom, which is what God was trying to establish through the Jewish people and now through believers in Christ. But I want you to hear what he says. These are to the exiles. What what was he going to tell them? Build homes and plan to stay. Wait, 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 wait. Build homes in these foreign lands, in these foreign towns, in these foreign cities, and plan to stay? Am I going to have to learn the language? Am I going to have to give up my customs? And what, what am I going to have to do? What's going to happen? Build homes and plan to stay. Plant gardens and eat the food that they produce. Marry and have children. Oh, here's a fun one. 
How many of you have ever heard, maybe you've even said, I'm not going to bring children up in this world. I'm not going to bring children up. It's not even worth having kids. Because I'm birthing them into a world that's in chaos. I don't think God's be fruitful and multiply to his people is negated by living in a bad culture. Actually, it could be the salvation of a culture. Just saying. The reestablishment of the family. Then find spouses for them so that they may have, so that you may have many grandchildren. Oh, wait a minute. So this is going to be a couple generations stay? Wait a minute. That's not fair. All right, we get the punishment. We get it. That's quite enough. Maybe a year or two, but then we can come back home, right? No, 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 no. Settle in. You're in for a long ride. He goes, multiply. Do not dwindle away. And work for the peace and the prosperity of the city where I sent you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, for its welfare will determine you. Wait a minute. Okay, I get having family and being in my own little bubble. I, I understand, fine. We'll keep our customs intact. We'll have children, and those children will have children, and we'll have large families in this foreign territory. But don't you dare tell me to pray for my enemies who put me in this condition and to pray for the cities in which I live and for them to prosper? That doesn't seem right. Verse 8, this is what the Lord of heaven's armies, the God of Israel says, do not, hear this, do not let your prophets and fortune tellers who are with you in the land of Babylon trick you. Do you catch what he's saying there? He's saying your, basically your prophets, the ones that are your own people, don't let them trick you. Wait a minute, so there are false prophets within the Jewish people? Or let's flash forward, there are false teachers, preachers, and prophets in the church today? No. Are you serious? For real. And here's why. Because the enemy has not been held off limits to these places. If he can get a foothold, a toehold, or toenail hold into the body of Christ, he'll do it. And he does a masterful job of it. Do not let your prophets and fortune tellers who are with you in the land of Babylon trick you. Do not listen to their dreams because they are telling you lies in my name. I have not sent them, says the Lord. Oh no, then who are we supposed to believe? How do we know a good prophet from a bad prophet, a true prophet from a false prophet? What are we to do? So we should, we should listen to Jeremiah, who's telling us to do things that feel like they're not right. Pray for our enemies and the prosperity of the Babylonians? 
But then we have other prophets that are telling us, all right, guys, we're in exile. It's only going to last a short amount of time, and we'll be back home. Don't listen to Jeremiah. Listen to us. Who's speaking? Well, it doesn't take long if, you're being, if we're being honest with ourselves. Those prophets, if you read the chapter before, you know what they were saying? We're only going to be here two years, guys. These, these cities and lands that we've been exiled to within Babylon, it's going to be a short stint. And then God's going to let us come home. You know the best way to test a prophecy like that? Sit and wait it out. Don't believe it. Just wait it out. Let's see. Two years isn't that long of a period of time. So what happens when the time of two years elapses and now you're into year three and year four? Here's what false prophets do. Oh, I made a miscalculation. <laughs> That's a toughie. Oh, wait a minute. Uh, I, I used the wrong calendar. Do you know how often this has happened from ancient Israel all the way up to present day? If you are a historian, you know your history of the church. There have been groups and people and major teachers and preachers and prophets who have said, the Lord's coming back on such and such a day. Sell off all your possessions. Go wait on this specific hillside because this is where he's coming down. And people go and wait. No, 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 no. Let's go to this place in Africa. Let's set up a commune. And eventually God's going to come back. And then, oh, when he doesn't, you drink some Kool-Aid. Some of you younger people have no clue what I'm talking about. But you've heard of drink the Kool-Aid before. I'm going to guess. Verse 10, this is what the Lord says. You will be in Babylon for 70 years. Okay, Prophets in Jeremiah 28 were saying two years. Jeremiah, on behalf of God, is saying 70 years. How many of you are 70 years or older? Well, some of you later are like, don't you ask me my, my age. How many of you are over 70 or over? So basically, most of your lifetime would have been spent in exile if you were born into that. Because this is what he's saying. Get married, have children, and have your children get married and have children. Basically, most of some of those people's existence would have been in exile. You'll be in Babylon for 70 years, but then I will come and do for you all the good things that I have promised, and I will bring you home again. For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. They are plans for good and not for disaster, to give you future and hope. In those days when you pray, I will listen. If you look for me wholeheartedly, you will find me. I will be found by you, says the Lord. I will end your captivity and restore your fortunes. I will gather you out of the nations where I sent you 
and will bring you home again to your own land. See, here's the key point this morning. Even amidst judgment, God remains with and sustains his people. We are told that God disciplines those he loves. His own nation, who had betrayed him, had prostituted themselves with the worship of other gods, sacrificing their children on the altars of these false gods, going into sex cults. There's some really crazy and twisted stuff in the pagan traditions of the Old Testament that the Israelites began to do, and they began to incorporate into their worship even in the temple of God. But even in the midst of God's judgment, he remains with and sustains his people. He gives them another opportunity, another chance. He says, all right, I'm going to kick you out of here, but I will be with you. Where else do we see that in Scripture? Think back with me to Genesis 1 and 2. And so you get the creation of everything by God speaking it into existence. You get the creation of humans from the dust of the ground and the rib and the flesh from the side of man. You get man and woman. They're living pleasantly face to face with God, walking in the cool of the day with him. And the one thing they're not supposed to do, they ultimately do because they're deceived by a serpent. In Genesis 3, they eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil from the fruit thereof, and they now have to suffer the consequences. Because God told them, if you eat it, you're going to die. Do you know there's a protective nature of God even in the midst of sinful beings? Because here's what he does. He tells them what the consequences of their behavior are going to be. The man, the woman, and even the serpent. There is a curse placed upon the serpent. There is a curse placed upon the ground by which they would earn a living and sustenance from. But there was not a curse on the woman or the man. But they were told, you can't stay here. And where was here? The Garden of Eden. And so what God does, and I mentioned this in my class that I was teaching this morning, he clothes them with animal skins because the wilderness in which he's sending them is harsh. That's protection. But it's also protection because there's a tree in the center of the garden called the tree of life. And God makes note of the fact that in their fallen, broken, and sinful state of perpetual death, if you will, they could eat of the tree of life and continue to live in this broken and fallen state for eternity. And so he kicks them out and has flaming swords at the entrances so they cannot make their way back into Eden. That's discipline with love. It's protection and love. But guess what? Did God stay behind in the Garden of Eden? Well, if you read beyond to Genesis chapter 4, just go to Genesis chapter 4. 
And we see interaction with God and humans in the wilderness. As Cain and Abel bring offerings to God and God speaks to Cain. So God is with them in the wilderness and he continues to pursue them beyond that. This is the kind of God who loves and who disciplines those he loves. So what does he tell the Israelites to do now that they've been kicked out of the promised land, they no longer have a kingdom or a territory or kings anymore, they are just a people living in a foreign land He tells them to settle in. He tells them to settle in. Or in our terms, he would say, bloom where you're planted. An ancient legend tells of a king who walked into his garden one day to find almost everything withered and dying. And after speaking to an oak tree near the gate, the king learned that he was troubled because he was not tall and beautiful like the pine trees over on the other side of the garden. He hadn't quite reached his maturity yet, so he was discouraged at how short he was. The pine then overheard the conversation and added that she too was upset for she could not bear delicious fruit like the pear tree. Well, the pear tree heard his name, and he began to complain that he didn't have the lovely odor of the spruce. And so it went through the whole garden with all the different plants and trees and bushes. But near the very edge of the garden grew this little daisy. As the king approached, he noticed how bright her little face was. Well, little flower, said the king, I'm glad to find that there is at least one happy face in my garden. Oh, king, she said, I know that I'm little and not many people notice me, but, but see, one day I realized that if you planted me here, you must have a really good reason for that. So, your majesty, I have determined to be the best little flower in this spot that I can be. You see, God told Jeremiah to tell the people to settle into the towns to which they were exiled. He told them to build homes and to plan to stay there for 70 years. They were to get married, have families, pray for the prosperity and success of the cities, but these people were the enemy. You see, this is still reflected. There was no, not a contradiction here. What does Jesus say in the Sermon on the Mount? What's he say that we should do to our enemies? Pray for them. He also tells us in the Gospels we are to what? Love our enemies. So if we are to love them and pray for them, what does that mean we are to do? It's pretty simple. Love and pray. I can't love my enemy, some of you are saying. Especially when they are directly attacking me. That is an impossibility. And to that I would say, true. But we are also told that with God, all things are possible. 
And so not in and of your own strength, but through the power and the glory of Almighty God, through his Holy Spirit coming through you, you are then able to love as you have first been loved and to forgive as you have been forgiven. This is the majesty, the power, the might, the glory, and I would also add to that the mystery of the gospel of Jesus Christ. There are times that God calls us to do that which doesn't seem logical from a worldly perspective. Consider Joshua's narrative many centuries before Jeremiah's time when he led the Israelites into the promised land through the Jordan River that parted and then they came to this town called Jericho and God told Joshua to have the people march around the city once for seven days, one time every seven days and then on the seventh day march around it seven times and then everybody in your group and there had to be around a million or more of these people, men, women, and children, everyone in your group on the seventh day after the seventh time around turn and shout at the walls. Ah! And we laugh. How many people were like, I'm sorry, we're, the seventh time what are we supposed to do again? You want us to turn and scream at Jericho? Yep, that's what God said. <laughs> uh-huh. Seriously, we all got to do it. You're a nut. How many people were probably thinking that? About Joshua. Joshua's hearing from the Lord. The Lord, the angel of the Lord had come to him and said, this is what you got to do. This is how you will conquer the mighty city of Jericho. What about Gideon in the book of Judges, who was called by God to engage the Midianites and the Amalekites in battle, but God told him he had too many soldiers. So Gideon started with 23,000 soldiers. The Midianites and the Amalekites had over 40,000 soldiers strong. They were already at a disadvantage. And God tells Gideon, yeah, you got too many. <laughs> I can imagine Gideon, because if you read his story, he's a pipsqueak anyway from the get-go. No joke, read it. It's pretty fun. But God says, yeah, 23,000 is too much to take on, like, say, forty to 50,000 soldiers, okay? So I want you to do this. And he does that, whittles them down to about 10,000. And God says, ah, yeah, you've still got too many. <laughs> and if you, if you look, here's what he has to do. I want you to have them go by the stream, by this river over here, and see how they drink water. Tell all of them to go get a drink of water from the river over here. And the one, <laughs> they're either going to slurp it like a dog. I'm not sure. You can't make this stuff up. It's in there. They're going to either slurp it like a dog or scoop it in their hands. And they got it down to 300 soldiers against 40 plus thousand soldiers. See, we can look at those stories and say, wow, that's pretty awesome. Super cool. They're a part of our heritage in Christianity and in Judaism. But do you believe that same God still works the same way today? Yeah, sure, he does new things. See, I am doing a new thing. He may call you to do something even more 
in the world's eyes, absurd. See, oftentimes it's the prophets out there that are saying, nope, it's going to be this way that God has not called, but the prophets that God has called, they're saying, okay, this is going to sound crazy, but this is what we need to do. You see, God oftentimes calls us to do certain things that would never contradict his character, his laws, his ways, to see if we're truly, if we are truly faithful enough to do it. How did you learn growing up? Did you learn by everybody telling you the answers? You learned by doing, didn't you? And, and sometimes in the doing, you really royally messed up. You smashed your finger with a hammer too many times to the point you realized, I gotta do something different because I'm not gonna have any fingers left, right? Or, or you, 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 you do by trial and error, you're not expected to be an expert. But see, this is what God says and does in all of Scripture. He calls his people to a higher standard, but oftentimes that higher standard is stepping into some foreign territory. And that foreign territory feels uncomfortable and out of place, but if God is calling us there, he has prepared a way for us there. And he desires to empower us there to good works. To glorify his name. Settle in. The true test of our commitment to God is our willingness to trust what he says and obey him when he speaks. Contentment in life truly only comes from our trust in God and our willingness to follow him no matter what. You will be so discontent until you find contentment in following God wherever he leads. Philippians 4, verses 12 through 13. I know, Paul says, how to live on almost nothing or with everything. He says, I've been so poor I couldn't rub two nickels together. Okay, he doesn't say that, but you get what I'm saying. And I've been so rich I've had everything handed to me. I've learned the secret of living in every situation, whether it's with a full stomach, as you can tell I have, or with very little. For I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And again, in that same letter, he declares, for I fully expect and hope that I will never be ashamed but that I will continue to be bold for Christ as I have been in the past. And I trust that my life will bring honor to Christ whether I live or die. You see, Paul was called in to multiple different situations, multiple different territories through foreign countries and people of many different languages. He didn't always know what he was going to step into, but there were times he was stoned and left for dead outside of a city or bitten by poisonous snakes or shipwrecked. He was driven out of towns. But he was obedient to go wherever God called. And I think most of us know the rest of the story. He wrote most of the New Testament that we have today. The second thing he tells his people is to beware. So settle in, but beware. 
Jesus would tell us to be wise as serpents, but as innocent as doves. That's what he says in the Gospels. He says, I want you to beware. Beware of those who tell you only what you want to hear. (laughs) How many of you have people in your life like that? Do you respect the people that tell you what you don't want to hear, but you know they're telling you the truth, the gut-level truth, or do you respect the people that only tell you what you want to hear? Who do you rely on more? See, it's important to have godly counsel. We have a board here at the church, the Board of Elders, and we don't want rubber stampers on that board. We don't want people just to be on there to cause conflict. You don't, you don't want just, your, I'm going to say no to everything you say yes to. You don't want just contrarians, but you want people that are going to be wise, full of the Holy Spirit, and advancing the gospel of Christ and the kingdom of God. But you don't want them to be rubber stampers. Because guess what happens to institution where you have key leaders who have a lot of authority and power and respect, but err and go off the rails, and you have a leadership that's all rubber stampers. What happens? It gets ugly, doesn't it? There have to be a healthy set of checks and balances along the way. So in Jeremiah's day, God says, beware of the false prophets. Some of your prophets, some of your prophets, your own people, who hold the label prophet are not prophesying on my behalf. Don't listen to them. You need to be wise and listen and understand. Well, how do I know? Well, they have a whole, how did they know who was right and who was wrong? I told you this earlier. If a prophet prophesies and that prophecy doesn't come true, guess what? That's a pretty easy way to guess whether or not they're a false or a true prophet. Amen to that. But the reality is, okay, sometimes you may not know for a while. In 1 John, he tells us in the New Testament that there are false teachers among you. And they're telling you to do things that Christ would have never been okay with. And here's how you know the difference. Test them with this. Look it up. I'm not just going to give you the answer. 1 John. It's a short letter in the New Testament. And it's a good read. Here's how you test them. Do this. Okay? But beware. I want you to hear this. Uh, I told you in chapter 28 that there, there were false prophets. Let me, let me read you a section of Jeremiah 28. One day in late summer of that year, the fourth year of the reign of Zedekiah, the king of Judah, which I told you was the last reigning king of Judah, Hananiah, son of Azur, a prophet from Gibeon, addressed me publicly in the temple while all the priests and the people listened. He said, this is what the Lord of heaven's armies, the God of Israel, says. So I want you to see what's happening. There's a showdown between Jeremiah and this false prophet. Okay, it's happening in the temple courts. Everybody's watching. The priests, the people are there. This is what the Lord of heaven's armies, the God of Israel, says. Now, Jeremiah, let me just tell you what's going on. God called Jeremiah to do some really weird things. 
okay? At this point, he's wearing a wooden yoke around his neck, like you would put on an oxen or, or a, a mule or something like that. And so this, he's, he's in the temple courts wearing a yoke. And I'm not talking about egg yolk. I mean, he looks great. I'm sure it's a fashion statement, but it never caught on. But this is what's going on. And, he, and this false prophet says, this is what the Lord of heaven's armies, the God of Israel, says, I will remove the yoke of the king of Babylon from your necks. Within two years, I will bring back all the temple treasures that King Nebuchadnezzar has carried off to Babylon, and I will bring back Jehoiakim, son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, and all the other captives that were taken to Babylon. I will surely break the yoke that the king of Babylon has put on your necks. I, the Lord, have spoken. And then Jeremiah responds. As they stood in front of all the priests and the people of the temple, he said, Amen. May your prophecies come true. I hope the Lord does everything you say. It's like saying, I hope it's only two years, but that's not the message I've been given. I really hope you're right and I'm wrong. That's what he's saying to Hananiah, the false prophet. May your prophecies come true. I hope everything that the Lord does, I hope the Lord does everything you say. I hope he does bring us back from Babylon and the treasures of his temple and all the captives. But listen now to the solemn words I speak to you in the presence of all these people. These ancient prophets who preceded you and me spoke against many nations. Always warning of war, disaster, and disease. So a prophet who predicts peace must show that he is right. Only when his predictions come true can we know that he is really from the Lord. Then Hananiah, the prophet, walked over, took the yoke off of Jeremiah's neck, and broke it into pieces. And Hananiah said again to the crowd that gathered, this is what the Lord says, just as this yoke has been broken, within two years I will break the yoke of oppression from all the nations now subject to King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. With that, Jeremiah left the temple area. Jeremiah knew that both had spoken. And the only way to determine who was right was to see whose message was actually the true. You see, sometimes God speaks and gives a message, and sometimes that message isn't fulfilled for years. How long are you willing to wait? See, we live in an instantaneous culture. We like to push a button and get something in return. But see, that's not how God works. We don't push God's button and then him just like a vending machine give us what we want. You see, God says, I'm going to do this. You either trust me or you don't. My hope is you trust me because if you do and you follow my ways, it'll go well with you. But it's going to be a while. This is why so many people, I think, in our culture give up on God because they think he's so late. If he was real, he would come through in our time. But that's not how God worked. God has a timing of his own, and his timing is perfect. We just have to rely and trust in that. See, that's where faith comes into play. And you say, oh, here we go. It's the faith talk again. If it doesn't work the way we want, then you just don't have enough faith. No, that's not what I'm saying. Even the faith of a mustard seed can move mountains is what we're told. But it is faith 
that sustains us for the long haul when it doesn't seem God's coming through in a time that we desire. See, prophets of God will produce fruit, the fruit of God. They will produce results if they're truly from God. But there are those false prophets who produce a facsimile of truth. But when pressed in, you can see that that's all it is, is a photocopy and not the real deal. This is why you always hear me say, and I'm, I will say it till the day I, probably on my de- my last breath will be, read the Bible. <laughs> it probably will be. I'm telling you, I think the, the Christian church in America, if it truly lived out the Bible, read it and lived it out, there would be revival like you'd never seen. Not just to read the words on a page and do what the page tells you to do, but understand that the living God is the one who inspired the words through the power of the Holy Spirit. And then the living word, not just the written, but the living word, the embodiment of the scripture himself came into being to show us the live animated word. You cannot know one apart from the other. To know the written word is to know the living word, and to know the living word is to know the written word. They are symbiotic in nature. But if you aren't willing to even open it up, then you're never going to know, and you'll be following every whim of the culture, and anybody that sounds like they have a convincing argument, well, all right, I'll go over, oh, okay, Oh, yeah, you bet. And you're all over the place. That's what happens in churches where there's not a consistently non-compromised word that is spoken even when it's uncomfortable. We are tossed about by any wave of the ocean. There's a rock, a firm foundation on which we have to put down roots. Lastly, he says, wait expectantly. How many of you would be willing to do, to go where God was calling you to go and to hear that he said, I'm going to fulfill this promise, but it's not going to be in your lifetime. There's going to be great things that are going to happen, but a part, your part of the process is not to see the fulfillment of the prophets, but prop, the, the promise, but to but to be a part of the fulfillment of that promise. Are you willing? The writer of Hebrews says these words. See, we read chapter 11 in Hebrews, and it's, it's this long chapter, Hebrew chapter. We call it the Hall of Faith. And the writer of Hebrews in chapter 11 tells about all of these different people from the beginning of the Jewish people on who by faith it was counted righteousness to them, though they never got to see the fulfillment of God's promises in their own lifetime. So I want you to hear then what he says. All these people died still believing, Hebrews 11 verse 13, all these people died still believing what God had promised them. They did not receive what was promised, but they saw it from a distance and they welcomed it. 
They agreed that they were foreigners and nomads on earth. Abraham was called in Genesis chapter 12, Abraham, this is God calling, go to a land I will show you. Kind of head off in this direction. And then he promises him along the way, the land in which you are dwelling now and in tents, your descendants will own someday. But Abraham never got to see it. He dwelled as a foreigner in the land that his descendants would inhabit. They agreed that they were foreigners and nomads here on earth. Obviously, people who say such things are looking forward to a country they can call their own. If they had longed for the country they came from, they could go back. But they were looking for a better place, a heavenly homeland. That is why God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Jesus, in John chapter 14, before he leaves his disciples, he's in the upper room with them celebrating the Passover meal before he's arrested. And he says, I'm not going to be with you much longer, but I'm going to go prepare a place for you. And when I've prepared that place, I'm going to come back and get you to take you home with me. Jesus, when are these things going to happen? Jesus dies, is crucified, buried in the tomb. He's raised from the grave, and for 40 days after his resurrection, he, he is with his disciples. He's encouraging the people. It says over 500 witnesses see the resurrected Jesus. And before he ascends to heaven, his, 12 disciples, his 11 disciples at that point, because Judas had died, they say, okay, now are you going to restore your kingdom and put us in a place of authority? He said, that's not for you to know. And it's not for me to know. Only the Father in heaven knows. And in his time, it'll happen. You just have to wait. That was some 2,000 years ago. Do you realize that? I want you to know now as we conclude, I'm going to call our worship team forward to close this out. In chapter 12 of Hebrews, after that long litany of faithful people that the writer of Hebrews is, is really championing and, and, and encouraging the other people through in the New Testament, he says, therefore... Since we are surrounded by such a huge crowd of witnesses to the life of faith, let us strip off every weight that slows us down, especially the sin that so easily trips us up, and let us run with endurance the race that God has set before us. We do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus the champion who initiates and perfects our faith. Because of the joy awaiting him, he endured the cross, disregarding its shame. Now he's seated in the place of honor at God's throne. It doesn't say he looked for joy to the cross. It said he looked for joy to the things awaiting him beyond the cross, knowing that it was through the cross was the only way that he could get there. And it's through the cross that you and I can get there too, but there's no other way by which anyone can be saved but by Jesus.
He is the way, the truth, and the life. Are you going to be one of those faithful witnesses? Maybe he's not going to come back in our lifetime. Maybe the promise won't be fulfilled at the second coming of Christ in our lifetime, but it will happen in the future. Are you willing to be among the Abrahams, the Isaacs, the Jacobs, the Moseses, the Rahabs? Are you willing to be among that great cloud of witnesses championing the next generation into the promise? Are you willing to stand firm on your faith in Christ, moving in the direction he has called you, even when it's uncomfortable? Are you willing to settle in and bloom where you're planted rather than moping around because you aren't where you want to be? Are you aware that there are false prophets out there that if you give them an ear, they will give you a deception? And the only way to combat that is to know the living word and the written word. Stand up here every week. Yeah, most every week. And that's my prayer for you, is that you would truly know the one the living word, Jesus Christ, who can be and should be the author and perfecter of your faith. That you would fall headlong in love with him more than anyone else in your life. And that no matter what happens in this life, whether you stumble and fall, let it be the ugliest stumbling and falling in the direction of Jesus that's what my life looks like. I wish I could stand up here and tell you, I've walked this thing called faith perfectly. But I have bruises and scars and bumps from living a life of faith that's not been perfect, but it's been good. And the reason it's been good is because Jesus has continued to extend forgiveness to me and I've continued to move in his direction when I screw up. I don't know where you are. My hope is that's where you are too. And if it's not, get on that road. And yes, it's going to be difficult, but it will be good. Don't give up. Press in. There is a God who is with you even when he disciplines you because he loves you. Heavenly Father, we love you this day. And it, I know for me personally, God, I struggle with seeing how you can love somebody who is a mess like me. Not everybody in this room sees all the thoughts that I think or hears all the words that I speak that I have to go back and ask forgiveness for. Not everybody sees the bumps, the bruises in my own life by stumbling and falling, spiritually speaking. But God, you see every bit of it and you still say, I love you and I want you. Come to me, you who are weary and heavy burdened and I will give you rest. Remind us when the enemy rears his ugly head as a angel of light that he is nothing more than a false teacher, preacher, prophet, hell bent literally on our destruction. 
Give us wisdom, encouragement, forgiveness. Give us a future and a hope, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand as we close? Thanks for joining us this week. Check back next week as we dig deeper and go further in our understanding of God's Word. Make sure to visit us on our website, www.northmaincog.org, where you can learn more about us. If you found value in today's message, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes, or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would be helpful too. Donating to the ongoing ministry of North Main is easy. Just go to our website and click on the Give tab at the top of the screen. Thanks for listening. We look forward to you joining us again next week.